If you have benefited from resources produced by G3 Ministries, would you consider donating to support us? Even a few dollars helps us to continue to publish free curricula, articles, podcasts, video resources, and more. Visit g3min.org give or open the G3 app to give a one-time or monthly donation. Articles from G3 Ministries John Gill and the Destruction of Antichrist Written by Chipley McQueen Thornton Revelation 15 verse 1 Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. How will the destruction of Antichrist occur? Gill suggests it will be by faithful gospel ministers faithfully preaching the gospel. The power of the gospel will be the, quote, downfall of popery, end quote. Remember, he sees the succession of popes as the Antichrist. With the man of lawlessness removed, Gill anticipates a worldwide gospel surge like nothing ever witnessed before. Gill believes Revelation 15 prepares the reader for these two glorious happenings. Number one, the destruction of Antichrist. And number two, the latter-day glory spread. The Destruction of Antichrist Gill disconnects Revelation 15 from Revelation 14. Rather, he sees Revelation 15 as a continuation of Revelation chapter 11, commensurate with the seventh trumpet and the third woe. He places these events in the Philadelphia church era when Antichrist is removed and the spiritual reign of Christ appears more visible and glorious than his spiritual reign presently appears. The seven angels, then, represent gospel ministers during the Philadelphia church era. He states, quote, The destruction of Antichrist will be by the breath of Christ's mouth, by the preaching of the gospel. End quote. Revelation 15 presents a scene in which those who came out of the Great Tribulation anticipate this destruction and joyously sing a victory song. The Latter-day Glory Antichrist's destruction triggers one of the more exciting aspects of Gill's eschatology, namely, the Latter-day Glory. Gill sprinkles that phrase, latter-day glory, throughout his biblical commentaries, especially the Old Testament prophetical books. He believes the gospel will surge worldwide with no Antichrist to hold it back. If he's right, it is a glorious era indeed and triggers a rapid-fire chain of events. First, the Jewish nation is born again at once. Gill states, quote, At this time, the people of the Jews shall seek after Christ. End quote. Second, in alignment with redemptive predictions of the 
Old Testament prophets, the Gentiles will assist the Jews in spreading the gospel from Jerusalem to the anti-Christian nations. Gill continues, quote, The forces of the Gentiles shall be brought to Zion, whose heart shall then fear and be enlarged. The fear of the Lord will be in all places and in all men, both Jews and Gentiles. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5. Third, the gospel will surge worldwide and the anti-Christian nations will become the kingdoms of Christ. Gill envisions, quote, The gospel shall now be preached to all nations, and the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of it. The kingdoms of this world will become Christ's, and his kingdom shall be to the ends of the earth, and all the people shall obey him. End quote. He cites Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10 as justification, which speaks of all nations bowing before Christ in worship. We understand the amillennialist sees this fulfilled in all ethnicities flowing into gospel congregations. But Gill takes it quite literally. In fact, he goes further. In his systematic theology, for instance, he suggests that kings, governments, and entire nations will convert to Christianity and bow before His Majesty. Here are his precise comments on Revelation 15, verse 7. Quote, Civil magistrates and very principal ones as kings of the earth, who in this state of things and times will belong to the churches, and will be the instruments of destroying Antichrist. And because these great men will be stirred up by the ministers of the gospel and by their ministrations to do this work. Clearly, Gill sees the gospel of peace changing Gentile hearts. Yet he also sees political and societal change with this sweeping gospel spread. In a real sense, Gill believes the gospel is powerful enough to convert the kingdoms of this world to Christ, such that when he returns, the kingdoms of the world really are his. Oh, what glorious thoughts, if true. Reflections. Yet are they true? Of course, this depends on your eschatological views. We've critiqued Gill's prophetical history concept before. We've also questioned his frequent allegorical tendencies, such as equating angels in heaven, Revelation 15, verse 1, with human gospel ministers. Yet, his broader future history sweeps do seem to incorporate the Old Testament anticipations with the New Testament material. For instance, I'm currently teaching through the Old Testament prophets on Wednesday nights, Paul's letters on Sunday mornings, and in between Paul's letters, the Psalms. The more I spend time in those three areas, Psalms, prophets, and Paul, 
the more I find myself warming up to the case Gill makes. The more time I spend expounding the Old Testament prophets, the more Gill's sequence of events makes sense. We often read Calvin more than we do the actual Old Testament prophets. Calvin was brilliant. Yet, on difficult texts, he is comfortable spiritualizing the texts to find complete fulfillment in the New Testament church. The Old Testament prophets, though, clearly envisioned a literal land and the nations flowing to Jerusalem to worship. For instance, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 4b. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn any more. When has this happened? I know the amillennialists say it happens in the New Testament churches, yet later Isaiah goes farther. Isaiah 60 verses 10 through 12. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that the people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Unless we spiritualize these passages and other similar ones, then the latter-day glory seems to be the logical place they fit. Not the only place, perhaps, but a logical one. The Old Testament prophets clearly envisioned a physical dirt land. For instance, Ezekiel points his finger to the gospel times and states, Ezekiel 36 Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. If this land is metaphorical for the New Testament church, we must be prepared to say the Old Testament prophets either, quote, spoke better than they knew, close quote, or else they simply misinterpreted God's meaning. The Apostle Peter indicates the Old Testament prophets inquired as to the time and person, but he never mentions they were confused as to the substance of their prophecies. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Yet the spiritual reign of Christ in the latter days, if true, allows us to affirm they knew exactly what they were saying. As well... The more time I spend expounding the Psalms, the more Gill's view makes sense. In addition to Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10, David anticipated the nations worshiping. Psalm 22, verse 27 states, quote, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. End quote. See also Psalm 67, 87, 96, 98, etc. This could refer to the New Testament church's multi-ethnic constituents, as amillennialists state, but it also could refer to the kingdoms of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Revelation eleven fifteen, in the latter day glory, as historic premillennialists contend. I'm not arguing either way. I'm merely suggesting both exegetically are viable options. Finally, the more I spend time expounding the Apostle Paul's use of Old Testament texts, the more Gill's view makes sense. It accounts for Paul's discussion in Romans 11, God's dealings with ethnic Israel, as well as his discussions concerning the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yes, Gill's thoughtful approach is enough to ask the amillennialist, will you allow Gill a fair hearing? You and he have a lot in common, and you may like what he brings in the end.